You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Let's open our Bibles together to Luke chapter 5. We're making our way through uh, Luke's Gospel. Uh, something to keep in mind, uh, I, I probably say this at least every other uh, Sunday, it wouldn't hurt to say it every Sunday as we look at, at passages from Luke, that Luke's addressing a man by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus is the kind of guy who, uh, on some level, uh, lacks assurance. He's a believer, but he needs a reminder or a kick in the pants or, or, or something. You know, Luke isn't clear about what it is that Theophilus needs, but it's important to, look, to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and know that when we look at passages from Luke's Gospel, um, a man is writing with a pastoral heart to encourage a brother of his, to remind a brother of his what it's like believing in Jesus, who this Jesus is, what Jesus has done. That's just important to have in the back of your head. We're looking this morning in Luke chapter 5. We'll begin at verse uh, 33 to the end of the chapter. Uh, we're looking at a, uh, a passage where Jesus' teaching has to do with, with the old and with the new, right? An, an old uh, garment, new garment, uh, old wineskin, new wineskin. It's, it's that passage. It shows up in Mark and in Matthew as well. For little theologians, what I want you guys to do is I want you to draw a picture of something that mixes something else. I'll let you determine what that is. Draw a picture of something that, that mixes two things together. Because the argument that Luke is making here, actually the argument that Jesus is making, is that salvation that comes through him can be mixed by, with nothing else. We're saved in only one way. We're not saved in one way plus anything else. We're saved in Jesus Christ unmixed. So little theologians draw a picture of something that, that mixes two things. But know that salvation, cannot, salvation happens in Jesus Christ. You can't mix Jesus with anything else and be saved. It's not Jesus plus something. It's just Jesus. He is the way of salvation. The passage again is Luke begins at verse 33. That's what we're going to look at. Let's go to God in prayer, and then we'll read the passage together. Let me pray for us. Our Father, thank you for speaking to us. We don't thank you for that enough. Uh, we must thank you often because over the course of the week, we don't seem to display that with our lives. Are we truly grateful that you speak to us? Father, would you make us a body uh, that is filled with individuals who love your word and spend time in it daily? Father, encourage us to that end this morning by uh, giving us understanding of your word and a heart's desire to apply your word in our lives. Uh, would this happen by your Holy Spirit? Thank you, Father, for making yourself known, speaking to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5, we're going to close out this chapter. Let's begin at verse uh, 33, Luke five thirty-three. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with him? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Remember, this is the word of our Lord. As we look at this passage, uh, we notice that uh, there is yet another confrontation, another challenge that comes to Jesus. Verse 33 says, And they said to him, It's hard to know who the they is. If you look in Mark's gospel, Mark says that uh, that the they are just some people. Mark says some people say this. It's almost like it's it's a broad population of people that are challenging Jesus. And Mark chapter 9 says that it's actually the disciples of John that take the lead in challenging Jesus. If we look at our context, just just go above verse 33, and you see that it's a party scene. Uh, It's a scene in which Jesus is sitting in the home of Matthew Levi, and uh, there is a large body of people. Disciples uh, are there, of course, but there's also a lot of uh, tax collectors and a lot of Pharisees and scribes. So when we come to verse 33, you know, and they said to him, maybe the they is just the Pharisees and the scribes. But as you look at Mark 2 and Matthew 9, it would seem as though the they is actually a larger body of people than you might imagine. It's not simply the Pharisees. It's not simply the scribes. It's not simply the disciples of John. You know, Jesus is challenged by every group And I think that's important to notice as we begin. Uh, Every group has some claim to challenge Jesus. It doesn't matter. You're not a part of some subgroup in which would have no challenges for Jesus. Even as a Christian, we challenge Jesus because he says hard things to us. But there's no such thing as a society that, is, that would, does not challenge Jesus. And this is good for us to know as we proclaim the gospel, we should expect to hear challenges from every corner, from socialites and from outcasts, from rich, from poor, from educated, from uneducated. You know, the Bible tells us that every human being is religious, that no human, no person is irreligious, is neutral is unaffiliated. That person doesn't exist. And what that means is as we go and we tell people about Jesus, we're not not filling in a void. We're not speaking into a vacuum. There is a prior commitment that's there. And as we proclaim the gospel, that prior commitment, it bucks and it pinches and it bobs and weaves And maybe that's the best way to understand, and they said to him, it's a large body from a multiple demographic, and they're challenging Jesus because Jesus says challenging things. But I think the big idea, the big theme of this passage is this, is that the salvation that's offered by Jesus does not mix with any other salvation. Not that there is another salvation 
But the salvation of Jesus doesn't mix well with your prior commitments. Doesn't mix well with your prior commitments. That's the big idea. And, and what happens then is there's a discussion or a challenge that is issued on the topic of fasting. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And Jesus' response is about a wedding, which is odd. The challenge is about fasting, and Jesus responds with a wedding. Now, in order to defend that strange response about wedding, it seems as though it doesn't naturally follow, Jesus then provides three proofs or evidences why a picture of a wedding is a good way to defend challenges having to do with the fast. Let's begin in verse 33 with the challenge having to do with fasting. You see, fasting was very important in first century Judaism. Very important. It's almost like it's one thing to pick on someone's doctrine. It's another thing to pick on someone's piety. For instance, you might go to, some, go to a non-believer and, and pick on them with regards to who is their God. But if you start picking on them with regards to habits in their lives, which they find great devotion in, it's almost like it's a little, it's a different issue. You could put it this way. Um, You can have an argument with your brother and sister about a doctrinal uh, distinctive. But as soon as you start picking on their prayer life, their journaling life, their life of meditation, it's almost like, well, the gloves come off. It's like it's one thing to have this doctrinal difference, but don't tell me I'm praying wrong. And don't tell me I ought not journal or I ought to journal. Does that make sense at all? Maybe that doesn't make sense. But fasting is an issue of piety. It's not like there's a huge doctrinal argument here. It's, it's an issue of making decisions with your private devotional life. And these they, in verse uh, 33, um, are challenging Jesus with a topic of fasting. And fasting was just important. It was a form of devotion and piety. Many people would fast. Many people in the audience would fast. But when you look at certain commentators, uh, William Hendrickson, one of my favorites, um, he, he notices that it's interesting that in those 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was this system of fasting that developed that is not biblical. In fact, Hendrickson and Sproul is another one. Uh, they say that the, the, only, the only rule for fasting that comes out of the law of God is in Leviticus 16 and Numbers 29. And it was a fasting that was intended for once a year. It was a fasting associated with a day of atonement. And so Hendrickson says, you know, fasting used to be a relatively simple form of devotion, but then over time, it multiplied. That's his word. Fasting multiplied. And as it multiplied, sometimes the multiplication was actually helpful. We know that King David uh, fasted, and we know that many Psalms talk about fasting. We know that Daniel fasted for three weeks And we know that our Lord and Savior fasted for 40 days and 40 nights as he was tempted. But if you write in your margins Luke 18.12, Luke 18.12, you begin to see that what's happened is the multiplication of the Leviticus 16 fasting once a year has gotten so bad that the Pharisee says that it was against God's law not to fast twice a week. There's a fast two times a week. 
And I agree with these commentators that say that there was, a, there was a degree of complexity that was added to the fast that's just simply not biblical. In fact, we can see some admonishment in Scripture, Zechariah 5 and Isaiah 58, where, where God says, when you fasted, it wasn't even for me. You're fasting, but not even for me, Zechariah 5. And Isaiah 58, the fast that I chose you to fast is the fast that actually looses the bounds of wickedness in your life. The fast that I want you to be a part of, God says in Isaiah 58, is the kind of fast that actually, by God's Spirit, causes you to grow in holiness, and you begin to walk in a holy way as a result. And to be sure, we can say that the Pharisees and John's disciples probably fasted differently. So when Jesus picks on the Pharisees for their way of fasting, you remember Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says that the Pharisees fasted with long expressions on their faces. They looked gloomy and downcast. And Jesus says, don't fast that way. That's Matthew 6. And presumably John's disciples are not fasting that way. I would hope that they're not fasting that way. But fasting was one of those things that was very important. But Jesus is highlighting the fact that that fasting has become mechanistic. That fasting has become a test for orthodoxy or a test for salvation. The Pharisees, they fast a lot. And as they fast, they fast in a way that's actually against the heart of God. Zechariah 7, Isaiah 58. Why do you think John's disciples are fasting? You know, Scripture doesn't tell us why they're fasting. It may be that they're fasting in a a legitimate King David, uh, Psalms kind of way. But I wonder if this is why they're fasting. I wonder if they're fasting because their teacher has been imprisoned. And Luke's already told us that. Jesus' public ministry opens with the imprisonment of John the Baptist. It's it's like John the Baptist is imprisoned by Herod. And Jesus sees that as a signal that his public ministry now is to begin. And so we have the baptism of Jesus tied to the imprisonment of John the Baptist. And I think the scene we're looking at here in Luke chapter 5 is early in the ministry of Jesus. And I wonder if John's disciples are fasting because their teacher, John, has been imprisoned and they're uncertain about his future. You know, when we look in the New Testament, we find fasting. And fasting seems to be tied with uh, mourning. Uh, That is, we uh, fast because we're mourning over something. Or or we fast because there's a, a big decision or something significant in front of us. Or we fast perhaps because there's a, uh, John Calvin called it a season of calamity in our lives, and so we fast. And, and the purpose of this good kind of fasting is that we would grow closer to God, that, that we would grow closer to His presence. And I think that's certainly what King David is doing when he's, fast, when he's fasting over the death of Bathsheba's baby. And he's fasting that he might grow closer to God. He is mourning. And he wants to be close to God. And he cuts out the distractions of life, food being but one of them. And so fasting has to do with presence. Seeking God's presence. And if we don't understand that, I don't think we understand Jesus' response to the challenge about fasting. It begins in verse 34. 
And when Jesus responds to this challenge, he talks about a wedding, and he says the groom's attendants don't fast during the wedding. See, the groom would have these attendants, and they, they come around him, they, make, they find out his wishes with regards to the wedding, they make arrangements for the wedding, they support the groom, they promote the event, they extend the invitations, and they serve at the actual event. This is what the groom's attendants do. They're drawing all of this important vibe on this important event. And it would be an insult if at that event they fasted. It would be an insult. And so Jesus is is in the process of marrying his bride, drawing his people to himself, first with the disciples, but also with others. We have seen Matthew Levi being caught by Jesus, drawn into his presence and his influence. Jesus at this moment is in the process of marrying his bride. His life is described as a wedding. And Jesus says that it is inappropriate that the groomsmen would fast during the wedding. You see, the groomsmen should know what he's doing. They should know that this is a magnificent occurrence and there's no time for fasting. Now, that jump from fasting to marriage seems like a big jump unless you consider that in fasting there is a desire for the presence of God during a season of calamity, during a season of mourning. There is a desire for God's special presence, a desire to push away distractions. And in wedding, there is that presence. Do you get the connection? In a wedding, there is that presence. Jesus is there with his people. You're not fasting, hoping for presence. It is God that has actually come to the people, marrying the people in this great groom, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's a hard jump, isn't it? It, 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 You have to look at it in such a way that there's these philosophical, emotional underpinnings that are kind of hard to stitch together. And, And Jesus must sense that, and he gives three explanations, not two, three. He gives three explanations of why it makes sense to... Uh, respond to the challenge by talking about the fact that he is marrying his bride. And the three explanations he gives, they begin with, no one does these things. No one does this. I want you to listen to the first thing that no one does. It starts in verse 36. One cannot sew new cloth to old cloth. And Jesus says, look, clothing gets old. It just gets old and it gets tattered and you get holes in it. But no one takes a new garment and cuts a piece of fabric out of it to match the hole in the old garment and then stitch it in there. Luke is the one who actually draws out the distinction of destroying something that's new. Mark and Matthew don't. But what Jesus is saying is, Jesus is saying, look, no one does this. You know, sometimes we think that, uh, that Christianity is just too hard for uneducated people, or Christianity is meant for adults and not for kids. How foolish a notion that is. Our Lord and Savior, being so pastoral here, actually provides these very simple explanations that we would understand the teaching behind it. And he says, no one actually takes a new, a new piece of clothing, cuts a hole out of it, and stitches it into the old clothing. 
Now, to be sure, when the old clothing then is washed, the new fabric is going to shrink, separate, and it's going to be useless. But Jesus makes the point that you're, you're not just kind of bad off, you're actually worse off. You used to have one problem, an, an old shirt with a hole in it. Now you have two problems. You still have the old shirt with a hole in it, and now you have a new shirt that you cut the hole in. Nobody does this. The problem would actually double if you did. Use the new shirt. You hear what he's saying? Use the new shirt. And there's something else that no one does. It begins in verse 37. He says, no one takes a wineskin that's old and puts new wine in it. You know, a wineskin is basically like a little lamb or a goat, that the hide of it that's been removed from the animal, and then it's sewed back together so it looks kind of like a little stuffed animal. But you actually, you tie off the legs um, and the rear end, and you use the neck as the neck. You turn it inside out, you fill it up with, uh, with wine. So it would be large, right? It, it's not going to be this, you know, this little thing that you get at Cabela's. They're actually large, but they get old. And as they get old, they get brittle, and they, cracks start to form, and uh, the wine begins to drip out, and it just needs to be replaced or refashioned to be, to, for some other use. And Jesus says, look, no one takes one of those old, brittle wineskins and takes new wine and puts it into it. No one does that. I mean, clearly, the wine is going to ferment, it's going to expand, it's going to burst the brittle wineskin. You would put it in a new wineskin. You see, you're actually worse off if you do it this way, because if you put the new wine in the old wineskin, it bursts. And look, now you have a broken wineskin that's not good even for old wine, and all of your wine is in the dirt. You're, you're worse off. You're doubly worse off. Jesus says no one does that. He just, just use the new wineskin. You got it? Use the new wineskin. Use the new shirt. Use the new wineskin. And then in verse 39, it changes just a little bit. And, and I think what happens is, verse 36, the, the tale, about, uh, uh, Luke calls it a parable, the parable about the garment, and 37, the parable about the wineskin. You ought to get like that, just immediately. But verse 39 is Jesus pulling out like a little stiletto and poking the Pharisees. And, and he's charging the Pharisees because he's saying, look, it is absolutely absurd for a person to love the old wine. By old, we can understand that as inferior. That might help verse 39. Read verse 39 with old being inferior and new being superior. When we think of wine, right, we're thinking like older the better. That's not what Jesus is after in verse 39. He's saying no one, or it would be absurd for someone to continue to love the inferior wine even in the presence of superior wine. An illustration might be, you know, you can really enjoy Texas wine. There's no problem with that. That's actually not sinful to enjoy Texas wine. But at some point when a $2,000 bottle of Chateau Petrus is before you, on some level you have to admit that it's better. On some level. And if you don't admit that it's better, then you need to be able to take it when a sommelier says, okay, you think the Texas wine's better, but you're actually wrong. Do you see, do you see what I'm after here? Jesus says no one is going to be presented with something that's superior and say, no, I want that which, that which is inferior. And Jesus is saying that specifically to the Pharisees because lo and behold, someone like that does exist. 
Someone like that does exist. They love the inferior, surround themselves, involve themselves in the inferior, and refuse the superior. These are the three explanations. A garment, a wineskin, and the absurdity that there are actually people who prefer the inferior even in the presence of the superior. Now, how do you tie all of these together? Three illustrations to show why it's important that a wedding scene is the way to understand the challenge about fasting. Well, fasting is a way to mourn a loss, a way to concentrate your focus, a way to desire to have the presence of God in a situation that seems as though there's no presence of God easily available. And so this passage makes one sense. Jesus is present. That's the sense of this passage. Jesus is present. He is with you. There is no searching for him, striving for him, peering through a clouded night looking for this Jesus. He is with you. He is here. You see, Jesus is going to say in the end of his life, Luke chapter 24, he's going to say that everything in the law and the prophets and the writings is about me. Everything. Everything in the law and the prophets and the writings is about me. I fulfill all things. Everything that you read in the scriptures is about me. Read Luke chapter 24 and you'll, you'll begin to see what Jesus means in this passage. Everything in the Old Testament is about me. Now, Jesus is not saying that you need to get rid of the law. Just ignore everything in the Old Testament because here I am. Jesus says clearly that I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish but to, you know the answer, Matthew 5.17, to fulfill. Our Savior fulfills everything in the law, everything in the prophets, everything in the writings. All legal material is a foresignification of Jesus. All poetic material, foresignification of Jesus. All, all uh, prophetic material, looking forward, it's all looking to Jesus. And that's what we're to understand in this passage. It's funny. I want to read a scripture from you. I want to read from John chapter 3. It's funny because John the Baptist actually got this. John the Baptist understood this. Listen to what he says. I want to read beginning at John 3, 28. If you don't have your Bible open there, just listen. John the Baptist is uh, saying to his disciples that Jesus is the groom, and he says that uh, his people actually rejoice at his voice. Okay? Jesus is the groom, and his people, his bride, rejoices at his voice. He says that, and this is a, a quote beginning John three twenty eight. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. John's talking about himself. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has, been, what he has seen and heard. And John goes on and he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is very critical because Jesus is saying, I am the greatest revelation of God's plan. I am the superior. I am, from verse 39, I am the new. From verse 36, I'm the new cloth. Verse 37, I'm the new wineskin. 
It's me. I'm here. Everything else you've read anticipates me. The only appropriate fast, the only appropriate devotion is one that makes Jesus at the absolute center. For those of you for whom fasting is an important part of your devotional life, I want to encourage you in that. But it must be about Jesus. Everything about your devotional life has to be about Jesus. Because whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The salvation that Jesus offers is a new salvation that can't be mixed with anything of the old. God has designed salvation to rest solely on His Son. His Son is the giver of life. Going back then to verse 33 and just investigating who the they are. If we see the they as Pharisees, then we begin to see that, it, that the Pharisees were trying to mix Jesus with legal merit. Jesus is a fine teacher and will listen to him, but he needs some fine-tuning, and I don't need all of him for salvation because I have my legal merit. And so any Pharisee that's listening to Jesus, if they're attempted to, would syncretize Jesus and their own merit righteousness. That they believe that they can work their way before God. And I'm going to listen to this Jesus, but I'm going to mix them together. And this passage says that salvation can never be mixed. It's all about Jesus and only about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is subsumed in the, the revelation of who Jesus is. But you know, that message is to us as well. We might not call ourselves Pharisees, but are you trying to mix anything with your salvation? If you're here this morning and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, does he receive all the glory of your salvation in your Christian walk or some of that glory? Do you judge others harshly? Because they don't understand Christianity in exactly the same way. They don't worship like you. They don't make the same kinds of life decisions as you make. And do you doubt their salvation as a result? And it may be that you're mixing those things, you're walking in wisdom, decisions that you make for which Scripture says very little about, you're using those things to count for your salvation in some way. Do you boast about your material possessions? Maybe over the course of your life you have made wise financial decisions and as a result today you're wealthy. You still know that you're saved only by grace, right? That a poor person can have just as much salvation as you. You know that, right? Maybe you've met the right people. Your career has advanced to such a degree that you're actually an important person in our city. That's fantastic, but you know that you're not saved by that. You know that unimportant people can have just as much salvation as you, and you need to watch that so you don't mix things. Maybe you've always been poor. You've always strived for noble causes, and rich people never strive for those causes. Important people never strive for those causes. But you're poor and simple and humble, and you pursue these simple things. That's fantastic but you know you're not saved by that. You understand that, right? You're not saved by a simplicity lifestyle. No one is saved but by the one hero, Jesus Christ. 
He is the champion of our faith. He has done everything that is necessary that we would be able to stand before God. And what that means for you is this. It means you who are wealthy, you can lose all of your money and still stand before the face of Jesus. And those of you who are important can lose all of that importance and still stand before the face of Jesus. And those of you who are committed to a simplicity lifestyle can be caught in public at McDonald's and still see the face of Jesus. You see what that means, right? Consider yourselves how how you're mixing other things with salvation. One of the ways to prevent that mixture is to know what you believe. You go to Scripture and you see that your salvation is based upon the justification that you've received in Jesus Christ. All of His perfection, He clothes over you. All of your sin, He takes and pays for at the cross. It's not a ratio, is it? It's a full transaction. All of your sin on His shoulders, all of His righteousness on yours. It's not a ratio. It's not a blend. The salvation that's offered by Jesus will not mix with any other salvation. The groom Christian has married you. He has entered into a marriage contract to be yours forever. I'm quoting John Owen. He's entered into a marriage contract to be yours forever. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for giving to us Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you're faithful to God in all things. We're thankful to you for fulfilling everything in the law, the prophets, and in the writings. That in your very body, you satisfy all of God's perfect demands. You're perfect before the law, righteous before God, the one whom the prophets looked for, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tell us. Thank you for being that man, the second Adam, the one who has worked our salvation. For your glory, amen.